Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Dangerous Rhetoric. I'm Brentley. Daniel will be joining us in a moment. Um, but first, I wanted to remind everybody to like, comment, subscribe. Uh, you can give us money. There's donation links in the description. We really appreciate everybody leaving a comment, leaving a like. It really helps the show grow. Um, and with that all said, I want to introduce today our guest, Miss Stephanie Wynn. Stephanie is a licensed psychotherapist and family therapist. She's a writer. She has a book coming soon. We're going to talk about that. Uh, she's also the host of the You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist podcast. And she's the associate producer of Affirmation Generation, which is a new documentary which sort of follows the stories of many detransitioners, including Laura Becker, whom you may have seen here on the show. So thank you, Stephanie, for joining us with all that said. Appreciate it. Great to be here, Brentley. Thanks for having me. Uh, maybe first we can just get into your backstory a little bit. Like, um, tell me how you, you know, came to discover the issue of, uh, you know, detransitioners and maybe how you decided to start your own podcast. I love the title, by the way. I thought it was really clever. Oh, thanks. Actually, would you tell me how does it land? Because like, I feel like I can hear people receiving it in different ways. So it's it's nice to hear that you like it. Oh, I think it's funny. I mean, you're obviously I mean, well, I knew you were a therapist. So um, I, I, I just thought it was kind of funny because it's I guess it's it felt like somebody may have said it like it was something you might have heard somebody said it to you, because you were talking about these issues. And yeah. they, they thought it was like a snarky sort of remark. And you were like, you know what? Yes. <laughs> That's actually how we came up with dangerous rhetoric. Daniel and I were accused of dangerous rhetoric during the lockdowns because we were uh, advocating against that and calling it kind of crazy and um they were like you know that's that's really dangerous rhetoric you could lead to you know somebody getting you know a cough and <laughs> we were like, that's the name of our show then <laughs> <laughs> that's great yeah i i do think that um you know well prior to the lockdowns when i had more of a social life i i did hear that phrase every now and then oh you must be some kind of therapist just having a conversation right and so that's sort of the inspiration for the the intro um to anyone who's listened carefully to the intro to my podcast you sort of hear this chatter like people are having conversations at a party right and then someone says to me you must be some kind of therapist and that's my intro so i'm, I'm glad you, you picked up on that and um yeah and it i the aim, you know, part of the name is it is, is a little playful, irreverent. You could take it seriously. You could take it lightly. You could take it as a compliment or an insult. So it sort of captures, it's like a Rorschach test for how you feel about therapy. And that's part of, part of my aim is to expand beyond the world of mental health therapy. And that sort of ties into your question about introducing my background because, um, you know, I was working within the mental health field and I was actually an affirming therapist. Thank God I never wrote letters um, or, you know, actively encouraged anyone to pursue medical interventions, but I did um, affirm people's so-called gender identities in good faith and um, and had some concerns, I think, growing in the back of my mind that I wouldn't have been able to articulate at the time about whether we were really addressing the elephant in the room or getting to the root of the problem um, and whether I was able to do my best clinical work while what I would now say, um, lying to people about how I perceive them, um, because, you know, a foundational principle of good therapy, I mean, it's one of the three principles of person-centered Rogerian therapy is genuineness, right? So already there's a lack of genuineness, but, you know, my concerns were growing in the back of my mind over the course of years of really 
trying this out, um, working with trans identified people and, and seeing it from the inside of the field. Um, but it wasn't until I learned about detransitioners that I was like, wait a minute. All right, hold your horses. Um, here's the other side of the story that I hadn't been hearing. Um, the very first context in which I heard about detransitioners was when I heard that they were being silenced. And, you know, what's shocking to me, Brentley, is that there are people who can hear that trans rights activists don't want you to hear from detransitioners and they can derive from that, then we shouldn't listen to detransitioners, right? Oh, somebody wants me not to listen to this group over here. Don't pay attention to the people in the corner. Look the other way. Oh, okay. I'm going to look the other way. That must be what's best for society, you know, because my mind and I'm sure like the way you and Daniel think too is like, somebody doesn't want me to know about something. Well, why not? Right. So sentiments are strong. Yeah. So that was 2020 that I even learned about detransitioners. And as soon as I did, I, I knew that I needed to understand the other side of the story. So I sort of started gobbling up their interviews. And you have to remember 2020, we were all locked down with nowhere to go. And so I just spent a lot of time gardening and listening to podcasts and YouTube interviews. Right. And um, and that began a whole new chapter in my life. And um, for about a year or two, I was sort of um, watching as, you know, nobody knew who I was. Um, I was only on Facebook. I wasn't on Twitter. And on Facebook, I was seeing these woke therapists sort of cannibalizing themselves over how everything's racist. And that's what I was witnessing on social media. I didn't really have anyone to talk to, not very many people to talk to about this, but I was sort of watching and waiting and feeling like I wanted to join the conversation. And, you know, I'd, I'd listen to people like Coleman Hughes and John McWhorter talk or um, Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying or, you know, any of these podcasts that were inspiring me back in 2020, 2021. And um, meanwhile, my career as a therapist has been hugely fulfilling for me. It's really helped me grow up quite a lot psychologically to learn from the human experience to the depth that I have with um, through the nature of my work. And I felt like I, I felt inspired to start up's podcast because there are constraints to therapy. I mean, the, the number one constraint is it is about the client and as it should be, right? So um, I can't necessarily always follow my curiosity when I'm, when my goal is to help the person with what they're in therapy for. Um, and I can't just share whatever's on my mind, but you know, here I have this really intellectually, spiritually, emotionally stimulating career but in therapy, it has to remain focused on helping this particular person. So my podcast is really an outlet for everything else that's on my mind and for um, the conversations I want to be having with a right, wide range of people. Yeah, I liked it. I was scrolling through some of your uh, episodes and I started listening to the conversation with the, I think he's a British therapist. I can't remember. The, the one that just came out recently with Bob Withers or was Bob, it Marcus yes. Evans? It was Bob. Bob. Yeah. It was, uh, he's, I like his voice. It's very like, like deep and husky. And, but the, the situation that he describes in the UK is like, a, it's, a, it's pretty, it's pretty advanced. It's like an advanced version of what's happening here. So yeah. hopefully, uh, I don't know, hopefully these conversations will, uh, mitigate some of the crazy as we, um, continue to have them. At least that's kind of the hope that I have for, for these kind of conversations is the, just to increase the general awareness of things like, you know, gender ideology and detransitioners, because it's not something that most people that are, you know, offline or off Twitter, uh, get to hear about regularly. 
Um, so yeah, that's a very, uh, so let me like move on to how did you, um, get involved with the, the affirmation generation in the documentary? Maybe we can play the trailer a little bit here sure. so folks can see it. So, okay, here we go. Um, yeah, just make it big. Based on the information that I had, that medical transition is by far the best treatment and that you are at risk for suicide if you don't follow that path, I thought I only really had one path that I could take. There's a current belief system. There's an oversimplification that all gender dysphoria has one cause, which is, you know, being born in the wrong body, and that there's one treatment, which is transition. And you don't ask questions. This is the only way to go. There are some people who do benefit from transition, but there's some people who are harmed from transition. The therapist said, I'm automatically transgender. And she had my letter to transition right away after my first session with her. autism, childhood sexual abuse, internalized homophobia, internalized misogyny. There's just so many reasons that people transition and end up later regretting it. It seems like all of this is based on the fear that if you don't affirm a child's identity right away, they're going to be at a high risk of suicide. It's just not true. And in fact, those who had transitioned had suicide rates 19 times higher than population-matched controls. These vulnerable people were treated incredibly badly by the professionals. I saw one of those therapists for probably about an hour, and he wrote a letter recommending testosterone for me. I will never be able to breastfeed. Like I said, I have to now live with what I've done. That's what I hear. I have ruined my life. I had a perfectly good body and now it's ruined. We're rushing to make a permanent medical transformation. It's not right to medicalize perfectly healthy bodies and make them sicker. It's not a trans, gay, straight issue. This is gonna harm lesbian, gay, bisexual kids because they're being push down a medical path rather than accepting who they are. It's trying to protect them from being sterilized. They're selling a product and they do a really, really good job. And young people, they're buying it. They're just buying it. Puberty blockers followed by cross-sex hormones. The fact they're being offered outside of clinical trials, despite the fact there's so much unknown about long-term risk, is a scandal in and of itself. I turned to professionals, doctors, and I was not helped. I was just ushered along, you know, very mindlessly. And I had permanent damage because of it. That's a very compelling introduction, a very compelling trailer. Um, how long has this been in the making? Uh, so um, I don't want to speak on behalf of our producers who, you know, started working on this before I ever met them. Um, but they approached me. Let's see. What year are we now? 2023. <laughs> uh, I mean, so um, 
So this has been in the making for a few years, but they approached me, gosh, it must have been like about a year ago, um, about my role um, just as, as one of the experts that they interviewed. And then uh, really the discussion about my role as associate producer and media representative just um, was more on the sort of post-production or, or nearing the end of production side of things because, you know, for personal reasons, um, they the people who made this film don't want to be the face of this film. And um, they chose me as a representative, and I'm, I'm really honored. Um, no, and bravo. I, I appreciate you getting out there and putting your face and your words behind it, because these are stories that need to be told. These are, uh, you know, these are the new marginalized. It's, it's so ridiculous because the, uh, the alphabet people, or the cult, as I refer to them, they are so big on marginalized communities or marginalized identities or these these people on the margins. Do I hear a little Josh Slocum in there? Uh, yeah, definitely. He's he's definitely he's definitely taken up a, a resonance in my head. We're got it. A big fan of the Disaffected podcast. <laughs> I have an episode of Disaffected coming out soon. By the way, I don't know when, but excellent. Yeah, no, we're we're big fans. I, I collaborate with Josh as often as I can. Um, I actually just recently uh, called into a Burlington City Council meeting. They have passed a they, what they call the a resolution in support of the LGBTQIA plus community and condemning transphobia. I think that was the right. title of the resolution. And it was basically like a flagrant attack on the free speech rights of conservative activists who uh, have been putting up these little stickers around Burlington that say things like, no child is born in the wrong body, uh, trans women are men get over it. Um, you know, real men defend women's sports and spaces, uh, things like that. You know, these these are sentiments that are broadly innocuous, but, you know, very offensive to the the cult, the LGBTQIA radical uh, individuals. They, they call it transphobia. Um, and they are intimating that these stickers make them feel unsafe or increase the likelihood of actual physical violence against them. And we're talking about stickers here. <laughs> yeah. So I called. So you called the... into a. I'm sure Josh appreciated that very much. I know he's been driven up the wall by what's happening in Vermont. But I think um, I interrupted you. You were explaining where. Well, where I think you were going is is something that I agree with, which is basically about how ironic it is that the, the sort of alphabet suit people think they're on the side of marginalized people, and yet detransitioners are the most marginalized people around, and they're the ones being silenced by these activists. Yeah, and they're they've also experienced real physical harm. They've you know they've had their uh, bodies uh, permanently altered, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, permanently damaged, and uh, some of them have lost the ability to breastfeed. Others uh, have lost the ability to have you know uh, standard uh, standard orgasms, you know, like because of the the bottom surgeries or something that's happening with that. So it's it's a really uh, crazy, you know, radical, and this is all experimental too. This is what people don't get, you know, just because doctors are performing these surgeries, there's not a sort of established standard of care. There's no, uh, FDA approval for these things. And, you know, they say stuff like the science is on their side and they have studies that show that, you know, if you don't automatically affirm these kids, then they have very high rates of suicide. And it's all just, poppycock it's not true and when you actually look at the the data the the, the better data um that's not coming from these ultra biased left-wing organizations that 
clearly have a bias. When you look at that, it, it's like, you know, what they said in the trailer that, you know, D-trans folks or people that have gone through transition in general have a much higher rate of self-harm than the, the normal population. So if there's any possibility that we can just, you know, let kids sort of age out of their dysphoria um, or perhaps look for other things that may be causing their dysphoria and treat those in a standard, you know, talk therapy sort of uh, milieu, that that's probably the, the best bet for the long-term, you know, health and well-being of that individual. Well, that's exactly well, it, right? Yeah. That, um, you know, medicine has always favored the principles of first do no harm and then provide minimally invasive care. So you always favor the option that's going to be the least costly to the patient with the fewest side effects um, and the, the least invasive and the least cost to the, you know, public health as well. And, and with this, here you have a situation where, um, you know, 80 to 90 percent of children who experience gender dysphoria will no longer experience gender dysphoria if simply allowed to grow up. And that was in a time when gender dysphoria was arising more organically. And what we found is that most of those kids were gay or lesbian and gender dysphoria was more likely to persist. So in the people, um, you know, in the 10 to 20 percent for whom they did still struggle 10 years later, um, they were more likely to be gay or lesbian. So then you have to look at the cultural environment, right? Because is their gender dysphoria persisting into adulthood? Does that have to do with maybe a homophobic environment or one that sticks to rigid gender roles, right? And that was before it became a social contagion. So now um, I would suspect that if these medical interventions were not available and it was just a social trend, that the desistance rate, if these kids were left alone, would be all that much more higher because there are kids who are only experiencing gender dysphoria as a result of social contagion who weren't even in that old cohort of kids who had it in a more naturally occurring way. Um, so, you know, the natural desistance rate uh, is high. The probability that these kids left alone will be perfectly fine um, is high. But 95% of children who go on puberty blockers do go on to cross sex hormones, right? So, it, the, the activists want us to believe that the natural process of puberty is um, a traumatic thing as well as an optional thing that children should be able to opt out of. And what they're doing is they're basically cutting off the solution. The solution to distress about one's body is going through puberty. And um, yes, it's, pro it's a prolonged struggle. It's a rocky, turbulent period that can last years, but that is a solution, right? And so what they're saying is they want us to prevent the natural solution and impose an artificial solution of what Jennifer Bullock calls synthetic sex identities that will essentially turn what could have been a, just a passing phase into a lifelong medical, a, a series of lifelong medical conditions one after the other that, that people remain dependent on the system for. Yeah. And it's just shocking to me that like liberal leftist Democrats who have always been suspicious of the motives of big corporations aren't thinking about how, you know, who's, who's profiting from this. Big Pharma and the fertility industry are the ones profiting from this. Yeah, and the other thing I'm noticing too in a lot of these sanctuary law, uh, sanctuary state laws now, now we've seen one in California was the first. Now Vermont is trying to pass something similar and New York State um, is that they are tying the so-called gender affirming care or as I think of it, the sterilization and mutilation of minors um, 
as uh, they're tying it to abortion rights because you know there's like this assault on both of them and so now we must naturally tie both of these things together in legislative packages and protect them at the state level just, well, Brentley, you don't know what I spent my weekend doing, did you? No, no, I don't. Inform me. Um, I spent my weekend uh, researching, writing, and speaking about similar proposed legislation here in Oregon. So, oh, um, yeah, so, so on Saturday, I did a spontaneous live stream, my first. I mean, we live streamed our D-Trans Awareness Day panel, but we had, like, professional filmmaker friends volunteering to help with that. Oh. But my first time ever just, like, hopping on a call like this and live streaming it as opposed to doing a podcast episode. Mm -hmm. And um, with a 70-year-old uh, trans woman or a trans-identified male who reached out to me saying, I'm a lifelong – or not lifelong, but I'm a long-term friend of – Representative Rob Nose, who's one of the people I've been testifying to, trying to reach. Um, and I'm a trans person and I oppose this bill. And so I hopped on a call with this person and live streamed it. And then I spent all day yesterday just writing 12 pages of commentary on this bill. Um, and I've been, you know, trying to get other people to submit their commentary as well. So today, you and I are recording this Monday, March 20th. And today at 3 p.m. our time, which is in two and a half hours from the moment that you and I are talking, is when people are going to begin testing. Testifying, and I, I won't be there. But some of the friends I testified with against HB two two four five eight. So Camille Kiefel, who you've had on your podcast, and Elise Weaver, another therapist, they are going down to Salem to testify. Julia Mason, who is in our documentary, who's here um, in Portland, will be testifying. Um, and so it's exactly as you described, right? Where they lump reproductive health care and with gender affirming care, and. Honestly, I, as much as I just wanted to focus on um, targeting that section of the bill that it was about the gender affirming care, the part on reproductive health care was terrible because they, they want there to be no lower age limit for how young a girl can be to talk to a doctor without parental knowledge or consent about contraceptives or abortion. Oh my. So yeah, basically like they, they're trying to create laws that like a 12 year old could be getting an abortion without her parents knowing. And my whole point is, do you th I'm sorry, do you think this 12-year-old has like a really loving boyfriend and terrible parents? Because that is not what's happening. You know who benefits from this? Child sex traffickers. People who are sexually exploiting children are the ones who benefit from being able to cover up their tracks and, and keep the parents from knowing. So that part was, was bad enough. But, um, but the gender-affirming part, they, this law was trying to basically force um, health insurance to pay for um, cosmetic surgeries mm -hmm. without dismissing them as cosmetic. So we're talking like facial feminization surgery, electrolysis, tracheal shave, um, you know, all things that men want, men who want to Gender be- Gender affirming, yeah. Yeah, so, so basically trying to force insurance to pay for that, um, offering all kinds of protections um, from, from doctors that provide this care um, in, or this so-called care, this harm in this state. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's a nightmare. So <laughs> I was just, it's the spent same. my whole weekend working on this. It's the same in Vermont. Uh, we like, I think Josh did a, a reading of the, of their, for their state's law and parsed it and very similar patterns with forcing insurance to pay for these things, you know, reclassifying them as medical necessity as opposed to cosmetic. Um, all of these things were very, very similar. Protecting the doctors who performed them, 
um, from any sort of you know out of state legislation. The other thing that that I don't know if uh, Oregon's law does this does this, but in Vermont, the one thing they're doing is they are codifying um, sort of the rights of parents who who sort of abscond or uh, you know like medically abduct their children and take them to Vermont for these procedures. So yeah. that if the uh, so mom and dad in Texas get a divorce, dad says, you are not, you know, transitioning our son. Mom says, yes, I am. Takes him, goes to Vermont. Dad gets goes to court and sues mom to stop her from transitioning the child in Vermont. Vermont, with this new package, will create a new uh, class of litigation called abusive litigation, where now she has standing to counter sue or to sue him for abusive legislation, for daring to intercede or interrupt life-saving, gender-affirming, medically necessary care. Um, so they, they go, they just keep going. Like, it's like how far, they, they just will not stop going. This is why I think it's really important. Professionals like yourself and men like me, especially gay men, uh, sort of put our collective feet down and say, okay, no more. This is, this is too much. You're, you're harming the kids. <laughs> Like we have children that have been harmed already. They're mostly gay. And you guys are still trying to argue this is, you know, medically necessary, life-saving when it's just a pack of lies that benefit pharmaceutical companies, that benefit these billionaires who we know are encouraging this because they're all really eugenics, eugenicists on the down low. They think there's too many of us little people running around. They think there's too much carbon or whatever. I famously love to repeat that we are the carbon they want to eliminate and reduce. <laughs> so... Uh -huh. It just it kind of drives me bonkers, and I see it all sort of like coming together at different levels. Well, you know, uh, today my episode 49 with Darshan Maharaja came out. It's uh, on Canada's medically assisted suicide program. That and we got into talking about the eugenic slippery slope because it's like there was a point in the conversation where, um, you know, while this isn't happening, we were basically able to articulate how the slippery slope that Canada is currently on with MAID could lead to a point where a doctor is like, you know, it looks like this um, this fetus in the womb has a crooked nose, and we know that you know people with asymmetrical faces are are ugly and they have harder lives, they have a harder time finding jobs and romantic partners, so we should probably just kill your baby. Like, it's <laughs> you know, where do you draw the line? Right. Like. Yeah, where where is that line? And and the thing is, some of these folks they don't want any lines drawn ever. And it's like this fundamental difference that you know, sane, mature, rational people have, versus you know, immature, sort of emotionally stunted activist types. Uh, and we saw a couple of them in the the public comment in the the Burling thing. It was funny. Josh in his most recent episode tore them to tore them to shreds. There was a lot of uh, personality disorder and uh, established. Um, immaturity uh, or stunted emotional maturity, I should call it, in, in a lot of these people that were arguing for, you know, these things, the, the, this medical necessity and, and the, uh, the, the alteration of minors. But it was very, very, very strange time to be alive. I mean, you know, the old saying is, may you live in interesting times and boy, do we live in interesting times. Like, right. Up as five minutes ago, it was it was never have been you know reason like it, it it just would have been insane in like the '90s or even the early 2000s to suggest that you know we need to medically transition minors for their optimal health outcomes <laughs> today. And it's just like they they're pushing it like it's uh, like it's a real thing. It just absolutely astounds me. 
I don't know how, how does it, how does it make you feel as a professional in the field? Like how, seeing this, uh, like, how does it, like, how do you put, how do you grapple with it in, in your own mind? Well, to me, it is the hill worth dying on. And it's like, if I don't defend our profession, there will be nothing left of our profession. So, um, you know, it's, it's like do or die. And I mean, I'm obviously like, I'm a pretty enterprising person and it was, um, very stressful to face threats to my license. And I wouldn't choose to go through that again, but I'm also not going to base my whole life around making sure I never go through that again. Like it's impossible to protect yourself from all dangers. And, you know, I'm, I don't know about you, Brantley, but I'm at a very awkward level of fame. Um, so like I have, you know, my podcast is in the top 2% now, and I have, you know, almost 13,000 followers on Twitter. And I'm like, just famous enough that like a lot of people want a piece of me. Like I get, you know, dozens of people reaching out to me every week, but I'm not famous enough that they would, um, expect there to be a barrier, you know, it's like, if I was like Jennifer Lawrence, nobody would expect to hear back from me. Right. <laughs> you know, but like, I'm just relatable enough and I'm, and I, you know, and I am related, like, I don't want to lose my humanity and I don't want to, but, but the thing is like, people will put me on this pedestal. And by the way, I say all this because like, I can't keep up with the amount of outreach coming in, but, um, a lot of people kind of like put me on this pedestal. They call me a hero or they say I'm, you know, they, they use very hyperbolic praise and I appreciate the kind words of encouragement. But the thing is the moment I say anything that doesn't match that individual's sense of what, like the image they've made in their mind of me and where I stand on, where I should stand on a given issue, then it, it infuriates people. But you were asking me how I feel about the direction of our field. I was saying I'm, I'm enterprising. So I, as much as I don't want to face more threats to my license, um, it's possible that I will. And I'm just not going to let that stop me. Like if I have to become a full-time writer, podcaster, and consultant. I mean, as it is, I'm torn because I hear from parents all around the country that are desperate for help. And um, I have to make very clear that I am not licensed to diagnose or treat mental health conditions in any state besides Oregon, because that is how licensure works. And, um, but you know, I get parents from all over the country, sometimes different parts of the world, mostly all, all over the country that, you know, it's like, so I have to offer them some, I give them a consulting option because, you know, I sometimes I can't find a, a therapist in their entire state. Um, <laughs> and it's like, so I know I'll be okay because there, my point is that like, there is a demand for people in positions like mine, but I also like, I don't love being so rare, you know, it's like someone, um, in my local community who I had the pleasure of meeting with recently, she came to our D-Trans Awareness Day film screening of Affirmation Generation. Um, she, she had a a reel, an Instagram reel that said, people, people call me brave, but if we would all be brave, this whole thing would be over a lot sooner. <laughs> so I don't really want to be put on a pedestal. I just want to inspire other people to be themselves. And, and with the criticism that comes in, like I received two critical emails from supporters this morning. And it's like, you know, you could consider like, instead of telling Stephanie Wynn to behave, 
as the Stephanie Wynn in your imagination behaves, who says all the things you want her to say. <laughs> like you could use that same energy to go do your thing. Like what, you know, do you have a blog? Do you have a podcast? Go do it your way. <laughs> I don't need to be the only voice here. I have, I have what are called, what I think of is like, I don't, I don't even know what to call them. I think of them almost as like hate followers. They, uh. they follow me on Twitter, but they sort of just like wait for the, uh, an opportunity to like try to like neg or, or tone police or otherwise, uh, you know, insist that I'm, I'm, I'm doing it wrong. And I'm like, okay, well, that's your opinion. Great. I'm not going to get into, you know, an 18 message back and forth with you on Twitter. So, you know, if you don't like it, you can unfollow me or you can, you know, start your own thing. Like Start your own thing. Like it's never that. been easier. And I mean, there's a lot to be said for and against the times we're living in. It's a mixed bag, but like one thing you cannot argue with is that it is easier than ever to start your own damn thing, people. <laughs> so <laughs> stop reaching out to people like me and Brentley and telling me how to be Stephanie and telling him how to be Brentley. Just go start your own thing. You have an entire audio visual production studio in this tiny little black mirror that you walk around with. It's like CapCut is this amazing app that lets you do basically like cinematic style editing on your phone. For like, you know, little videos that you cut and splice and shoot, you know, I, I, I'm like a, I would say an amateur level TikToker. I do like, uh, we have the long form podcast, but I also like to do short form, like little video commentary for, for TikTok and Instagram, just really as promotion for the show um, and to, to draw more, to draw more eyes on the show. But it's, uh, it's, it's easy, you know, all you have to do is just you have a thought, have an idea, shoot it. And then, you know, you can put sound to it. You can splice it up. You have a lot of different options available to you. Um, and, and it's a much healthier expression of that, that energy to, to, you know, take those thoughts that you're having and put them out there yourself instead of to just, you know, go to the creator that you happen to like a lot, but also like really hate how they do this one thing and like really have to let them know how they, you know, have to change this one thing that they do. Just let it go. Yeah. Like if you feel that strongly about it, like you should really take the time to start your own blog, start your own Substack. You know, there's so much room for for people to to chime in with their voices, and you can do it anonymously. There's a lot of options for that too. So yeah, it does seem like something that people love to do. And also, I'm not, I'm never always sure. Like it was like you said earlier, we do have a limited bandwidth. There's only so much we as humans, you know, that Stephanie can process in any one day. There's only so many people, you know, whose names and backstories you can actually fit in your like recently activated memory uh, yeah. at any one time. So people have to understand that you know, and this is something that Josh used to talk about with uh, having a more high engagement account and his friend Holly, who also had a high engagement account it's very difficult for people to keep up with the, the sheer number of DMs, emails, messages, uh, notifications. So the, the appreciative viewer will allow for that and, you know, give, give, uh, you know, give time to the person if they send a message and they don't get an immediate response, like just realize that like, you know, we're, we're busy. We're generating content We're you know, there's, there's a lot happening all the time. And we're trying to focus on deep work. You know, like this is deep work, writing is deep work, and you can't do that if it's just typing text at 
20 different people an hour. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually just started a locals community. Um, it's at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. And it was it was my solution. And Locals is a really good platform. I don't know if you've ever used Locals, Brantley, but it's really designed for people like you and me where we have, you know, a few hundred or a few thousand followers or, you know, people with more followers than that, where um, there are people where, where we're sparking dialogue and there are people who want to go deeper and people who want to have those conversations with others. So, oh, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. So, um, yeah, it's um, it's starting off slow, but this is sort of my way of saying, hey, if you have a question for me, here's where you can go. It's only eight dollars a month and you can even get your first month free with promo code grandfather. So it's really not a lot of money at all. But if you join my locals community, I have a, a thread where you can post your comments for that week or however long the time period is where I'm collecting people's questions. And then I will respond to that with a members only live stream. So that way, you know, I have one place that I am promising to keep up with messages and that's my locals community. And yes, there, it does take money because other I'm not getting paid to answer your emails, people. So you got to pay me $8 a month to join my community. <laughs> Thanks. That's the way it is. Thanks I mean, for letting me pitch that. Oh yeah, no, no, no. I wanted to make sure that, uh, that I mentioned I worked that in somehow at some point, um, because it is important for creators to get paid for their time and their effort. And and again, once you do start to cross that threshold of ten thousand, you know, people following you, you know, in any really medium or across all the mediums, it's when it becomes very difficult to keep up with you know DMs and and random messages. So. You know, they have to, people have to understand that your attention and your time is limited. You're also, you know, you've been, you're putting out content, you're putting out your podcast, you're putting out things like affirmation generation. You're, you know, going to, and doing the, the, the testimonies when you can. And, and all of that stuff is important work. And then, like you said, it's deep work and, you know, answering questions. A lot of times too, the one thing that kind of drives me nuts about people on the internet they could answer a lot of these questions themselves if they would just spend a little time Googling. Like if you have a question that you want to ask your favorite creator, do me a favor, look for the answer yourself first on Google or chat GPT, because it's probably there. I mean, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, that, that has already been covered. And a lot of the questions that I get anyway, in, in my DMS tend to be things people could figure out for themselves if they actually just, you know, spent two seconds and, and did it. But, well, and I understand the feeling like there's this weird phenomenon where you feel like you have a personal relationship with your favorite creators, right? And and so, I mean, I feel like I know these people who don't know me. And now I'm on the other side of that where there are people who feel like they know me and I don't. And so it's like understandable if, if your impression of someone internally is as if they're your friend, then of course you want to be like, you can ask your friend a question. But um, but yeah, it just doesn't work that way when you're on the receiving end of those questions. Right. It's, it's, and also it's, it is hard to keep up just with the sheer volume of, of, you know, contact requests, you know, between I'm horrible at it. We have, so between, you know, Daniel and myself and dangerous rhetoric, I've got about, I don't know, six different emails that I use. So email is the worst way to get in touch with me. Um, probably Twitter DMS is the best way. For folks out there if you're trying to get in touch with me definitely you can DM see me i'm that. the other way around because the problem with dms is you can't mark them done you can't archive them you can't set a reminder for next week <laughs> you know i'm like if you want a response send it to my email that's the best chance i can't promise but no actually the best thing you can do is join my locals that's where i'm promising yeah. it's the only place i'm promising but I, I i hope we don't lose too many people with our uh our humble bragging about our our 
our fame problems. <laughs> no, I, this no, could be I, really alienating. Uh, yeah, I guess I could understand that. But I mean, as somebody who, you know, sort of, I, I, I don't even think, I, I wouldn't even classify myself as like particularly famous. I don't have like a DM problem in Twitter. Um, but more just the just the sheer volume of like junk email I get across multiple yeah. addresses. It's just very hard. And then sometimes That's I'll have you. correspondence with like an individual in one email box and then it's uh, looking for it in the wrong one. So it gets kind of confusing. But um, yeah, so I it's 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 very difficult to keep up. And this is something folks forget. You know, we are really you know, our, our period of evolutionary adaptation was more when we were living like in small tribes and hunter gatherer style societies. Uh, so we the max number of people that we would interact with in any lifetime would be like on the order of, you know, 100, 200, something like that. Um, and over time, as society has gotten a lot more complex, we've had the needs for more and more, you know, people are more and more brain space and we have more and more interactions. Daniel's here. Yay. Welcome back, Daniel. So let me yeah. just bring you up to speed. We talked about Stephanie's background in therapy, how that sort of led her to start her podcast uh, so um, it, over COVID because it was a good time to do that. Yeah, and, a lot of people did that yes, <laughs> through COVID. Yes, we did that too. And it was a good time because, and also the, the podcast sort of lets her talk about things that she can't really deal with in, you know, like interesting questions that would come up in her therapy practice. She okay. can really explore them on the podcast um, because, you know, therapy is obviously client centered. Then we talked a little bit about affirmation generation yeah, and shared the trailer. We can go back into that because we kind of just like glazed through it a little bit. Um, and uh, we didn't quite get into the drag queen story hours yet, but I thought we could talk about that after. Yeah, um, Brent and I watched Affirmation Generation a couple weeks ago. Oh, so good. Very emotional film. It was our, very emotional. Our friend Laura Becker was in it as well, so she told us about it, and she was like, hey, I'm going to be in this. You should check it out. So when it, as soon as it came up, you know, we pulled it up and sat down and watched it, and it was very good. I thought it was... Um, you know, a very, very apt take on the entire situation. And I, th I like that it profiles different people and their unique experience, but also, you know, it, there's that kind of unifying thread of the fact that they all kind of went through with this, you know, and then ended up regretting it. And it's, it's sad, you know, the whole thing is sad, but it also, it, you know, it humanized the detransitioners. And I think that's a very important thing, Brett, and I talk about that all the time on the show how we don't want people like Laura to end up as these political props that are just kind of passed around or used for shock value. But you, you want to look at them, they're individuals, they're people, you know, they're human beings who went through something, but that doesn't necessarily define everything they are. So I like that you highlighted like their interests. You know, I know one of them was a musician. So you show, I forgot her name. Um, she, you know, her, her band, what was her name? Cat. Cat, yeah, you know, you showed her and her band and like the things she liked to do beyond just this thing that happened to her or that she went through. And I think that's incredibly important when talking about these stories. Yeah, thank you for saying that. I'm really proud of, of how the producers put this together in, in such a human and compassionate and real way. And um, yeah, we, we do wanna highlight the people are multifaceted and, and relatable, right? I think part of what's allowed the trans contagion to get to the point that it has is that 
there's this magical thinking that goes into this idea that there's this whole separate class of human that doesn't follow a normal developmental trajectory, that knows who they are at a young age, that can make lifelong decisions at age 15, you know? And that's just not true. You know, the people who we consider these magical trans people, they're just like you and me. They're people who have, you know, they go through rough times, they have their issues, and then an idea gets introduced that's really seductive. Um, I also interviewed Laura on my podcast recently, but that episode hasn't come out yet. But we also talk about more that kind of healing phase and that, you know, post-trans making life meaningful. And I'm glad that Laura has her art and Kat has her music and that, um, you know, I know you guys interviewed Camille and she's a friend of mine here in Portland and, you know, she's very focused on healing. Um, I think it's so important that we recognize detransitioners' humanity and support them going on to live full lives. And, and with that, it's really important that we tell their stories compassionately and that we allow them to kind of come and go from the spotlight. Because if you've been following these issues for a while, like all three of us here have, then you've seen certain detransitioners sort of emerge into the spotlight, get bombarded with both positive and negative attention, and then need to pull back. And many have reported that it's it's draining and exhausting and re-traumatizing to be asked to sell their stories again and again and again. So I think what's important is that we let each person tell their story as much as they're comfortable with. And then we listen to that story and we do the best we can with that story. We turn it into a film and we, you know, people like me who do deterrence advocacy, we help tell their story. And we're not always going to get it right or say it the way that they would want it to be said, but we're going to incorporate what they've already shared um, the emotional labor, so to speak, you know, to put it in, in lefty terms, right? We're going to incorporate uh, the work they've put in, which is enough, and then we're going to take it from here. Yeah, and, and, you know, remembering that there is a, there's self-agency in these people. They are choosing to tell their stories. They don't have to do this, and that's very important to remember. Like, they're not being coerced or forced, you know, because like you said, they have to keep kind of almost repeating that trauma every single time that they tell it. And for some that might make it easier, you know, over time, you know, you've told the story so many times, you're just like, all right, it doesn't really affect me anymore. But for others, if they're still in that healing phase, especially, it's like you're ripping the bandaid off every single time you do it. So there, there's that self-agency and we have to remember they aren't props, they aren't tools for your political agenda, whether you're approaching it from the left or from the right, they're human beings and they have a self-agency in choosing to tell their story and I hope, you know, for the most part, they're doing it for good reasons. I'm not saying all of them are. I don't know all of them as individuals inside, but I'm assuming every single one of them wants to try to help uh, help others avoid making similar mistakes that they made. Well, I agree with you, Daniel. And what you're saying actually bears a lot of resemblance to the principles of good trauma therapy. So, you know, my experiences before I ever came into the public sphere or even heard about detransitioners, my experience as a trauma therapist, you know, when someone comes to you and they have had... Um, you know, experiences of being violated, for example. Um, you know, part of how the psyche adapts to that is that, that you don't have your own boundaries and so you don't know how to take care of yourself and create a sense of safety and well-being, right? So oftentimes trauma survivors will show up to therapy just spilling, flooding, right? Just like... And they'll be really emotionally dysregulated and... You know, I think a, a naive therapist or someone early in their career or someone who, who's maybe not a therapist but just trying to be a good friend to someone like that might sort of think, oh, they just need to vent. This is, this is what they need. And sometimes that's correct. Sometimes that is true. But 
it's also important to check in with someone when they're in that state of, wait, how are you doing in this moment? And is, is telling this story or focusing on this memory, does this feel like a supportive thing for you to be doing right now? Right, because sometimes it just sort of sends them spiraling. And if there's no sense of safety or containment in their life, let's say they're new, a new client and they haven't established a sense of trust with me yet, right? Or let's say that after their therapy appointment, they have to go back and get a ride home from their abusive partner that they're still with, <laughs> right? There could be any number of circumstances that are not creating the right, safe, contained environment for that person to really bring up those feelings and know that they can they can hold and process them. So sometimes part of the relational process of trauma therapy involves um, sort of modeling that it's okay to check in with yourself as to whether this feels okay to share, whether you feel safer or more unsafe by sharing this in this time, in this way, with this person, in this environment. And yeah. I would say the same for any detransitioners, whether in a therapeutic context, um, which many of them will never try again, by the way, because their trust in therapists has been so badly damaged. Um, or, or, you know, in a media context, like, how, how are you doing as you're sharing your story? Does this feel like a relief? Does it feel like you're reclaiming some agency by finding the power to put it in your own words, finding the power to choose to talk to who you want to talk to, when you want to talk to, tell your story in your way? Or is it reactivating maybe feelings of, of helplessness? or vulnerability or overexposure. Yeah, uh, this, all this reminded me of this quote by Jordan Peterson that I like. Um, every time I see it, I'm like, yeah, so true. Um, he said, people organize their brains with conversation. If they don't have anyone to tell their story to, they lose their minds. Like hoarders, they cannot unclutter themselves. And I think that's part of what it is. It's like when you're dealing with that alone and you have no one to talk to, and this is why therapy is important, it gets all cluttered up inside and you have to have someone to bounce those things off of to start to organize like, all right, what is happening inside of me? Or why am I, you know, why am I not able to get past this, this particular thing or that? So, you know, I think that, I think that it's very important to have someone to tell your story to. It's yeah. also something that I kind of, you know, worry about in general with the younger and younger. Now we're seeing detransitioners. Um, we've seen we've seen the left use children as props in their politics, and that sort of drives me up a wall. I can't stand seeing some young kid like pushed out into the spotlight as you know an LGBTQ activist and advocate. You know when they're in their teens or their early you know preteens in some cases. Um, so I, I get nervous about some younger you know detrans folks who are doing a lot of speaking, a lot of touring. Um, and I just, you know, back of my mind, I'm like, is this, you know, I really hope it's what's best for them that, you know, they're, they've got the support of their, their family, their network, um, and that it's, it's actually healthy and not harmful. Um, because it just seems to me like the, I don't, I don't want to see the same thing happen in the D trans, uh, backlash that we see happening in the, the trans social contagion. I don't want to see children exploited to make a political point, you know, and it's, you know, we can say it and it's the ones that come forward and want to tell their stories. I think it's great and we, we need them and I appreciate it, but I, I would just, you know, I'm, I get concerned about that being, you know, pushed too much or to happening too often, especially yeah. as we see younger and younger kids now detransitioning. Yeah, I agree with your concerns and, you know, and I've, I've said this to some detransitioners that I know that are kind of grappling with being in the spotlight that 
Um, you know, I wasn't ready to be in the spotlight until I was well into my 30s, deeply established in my career, felt like I had something to say that I'd really thought about. And still, and like, I'm in a pretty good place in life and still like being in the spotlight comes with plenty of challenges. So, you know, what does that say about people who are in the spotlight at a young age for their trauma? Uh And like, how, how are they able to handle that? And also what kind of foundation is that for their future? Because moving on is a really important piece. And there are certain, you know, there are certain people who've been through this experience um, of being D-trans where that's going to continue to be a big part of their identity and their meaning for a long time. And they're going to go on to do all kinds of advocacy work. Um, you know, they're, they might pursue law or counseling to try to get help for other, um, you know, detransitioners in the future. But, um, but that's also not going to be the right fit for a lot of people, or that's going to come with certain consequences for them. You know, we know from the research, for instance, on, um, on the, the 20s, like um, there's a psychologist named Meg Jay who wrote a book called The Defining Decade that's all about your 20s. People underestimate how much they're going to change in their 20s. Like if you ask the average 19-year-old where they see themselves at 30, what they have in mind is going to be a lot closer to where they are in, at 19 than where they're actually going to end up at oh, yeah. 30, right? Like we all know this from experience, but it isn't it interesting to know that there's actually research that proves this, right? So, um, so, you know, think about people who are making big names for themselves at 18 or 20, um, you know, are they leaving themselves enough room to grow and change? Yeah. So it's kind of a replication of what we're worried about with the trans kids where there's this identity foreclosure, right? Where they're making life altering decisions at a young age, and then they're not going to be able to grow out of those decisions because they've made it physical and concrete. You know, I think the same could be said as just a concern for detransitioners. And that's not to say that anyone should, you know, sit down or shut up or any of that by all means, like do all the advocacy you want, but just be aware that there are you know, maybe some consequences for your long-term mental health and your ability to meet other needs that you might have. Yeah, and especially this is something that I think about with um, D-trans folks and trans folks. Uh, one of the things that we've noticed in talking to people uh, on the show is that they there is a trauma component and it's, it's, it's frequent in, in trans folks and D-trans folks. Uh, every, I think we've spoken to six or seven trans and um, D-trans people total now. Four, we've spoken to for D trans people, and so Laura, two, and Richie, Shade, yes, and, and Sarah Higdon, who is trans, and Sarah also Higdon, Buck Angel, who's trans, Angel, yeah. and everyone has had a uh, a trauma component. They've had experience with trauma, um, and so it, I think that that's sort of like the elephant in the room. Now, granted, it, I, I'm not saying that every case of dysphoria ever is caused by trauma. And that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there does seem to be a very high correlation between people who experience trauma and also those people later experiencing gender dysphoria. And, um, you know, if these are the people that are detransitioning as well, it, it does complicate the picture. You know, these are vulnerable individuals that were sort of like hurtling into the spotlight or stepping into the spotlight. It does behoove them and us, you know, to to treat them as as people and, and not props in, in a political thing, because yeah. we don't want I don't at least want to be what I see them doing. Like, I don't want to become the thing that I rail against. Sure. So I try to be aware of that. Yeah. And 
and hopefully, you know, the, the, when they do come forward, it, it helps them and it's not further harming them. And if they need to step back, yes, please do step back. That's what happened to Casey Miller. Casey Miller had to back off because it became too much for her. And mm -hmm. I understand, you know, and she also wrote long threads about the stuff that we're saying here, you know, that there are definitely people on the right who don't really seem to care too much about the individual they're there it's all about the shock value to make their point like look what they did to their bodies you know and this sort of thing where it's like if they're that's a person you know how you how you portray that person matters in and how you're making your point. yeah i think as podcasters and content creators it, we sort of have, we have a, a responsibility well we do but we also have a fundamentally different approach sure. to you know these situations than the corporate media establishment they want to take you for your 30 second five second yeah. hot take throw you out there in front of the camera you know put makeup on you and then next whereas you know i think we try to have long-form conversations mm -hmm. we actually are interested in the individual and getting to know them and so that's it seems to be a fundamentally different approach from i, I don't want to call it new media but like that's you know true different you know the, the newer generation of content producers yeah i think stephanie's point too about the 20s is just so relevant and so true <laughs> and this so is, true. the kids don't the yeah. kids don't think about this they don't look i'm 32 now and i did not think i would be doing this and being now a i guess mini public figure yes there are certain consequences that come with that like brad and i have had like new york city antifa like try to dox us and shit like that like i've gotten threats and violence and and that sort of thing and if i were like a less stable person <laughs> you know i don't know if i'd be able to handle that stuff and i think me in my early 20s probably would not have been able to really handle that stuff i wouldn't have been mature enough yet i didn't know who i was enough yet so it's you you really don't know between 19 and 30 where you're going to end up you have this plan in your head and you think like oh that's what i'm going to do i'm going to be a famous writer or an artist or this or that and next thing you know you're like doing something completely different or maybe related, you know, maybe those things that you thought you were going to do that you were working on informed where you ended up, but you ended up in a totally different path See, than you. At 19, predicted. I thought I was going to be a PhD level research yeah. scientist in <laughs> genetics and molecular biology. And that is not what happened. That's not what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Did you always want to go into therapy, uh, Stephanie? No, actually. I mean, that was one of those things that changed in my 20s, too. Like, I started off my 20s very interested in spirituality and the environment and health. And then midway through, discovered I wanted to be a therapist. And now I'm a podcaster. Like, yeah, I mean, I think what you're saying is it's good news, too, because being 18, 19, 20 is such a vulnerable, confusing time. You feel so lost and embarrassed because like you're supposed to be an adult you're supposed to know how to do that but you have no life experience and um and i always try to reassure you know when i have patients i'm seeing that are between the ages of 18 and 24 i always try to reassure them reassure them you don't need to know who you are yet and you don't need to know what you want to do with your life like here are some really grounding things you can do that might seem counterintuitive, or at least they're not what you're hearing you should be doing on TikTok. But actually, try not to think about yourself too much. Try not to figure out your identity or where you belong or any of that. Try to just get some life experience. And as anxiety-provoking as it is can be, to be like a, a little baby adult in the world, what I, what I would want anyone between the ages of 18 and 24 to know is that all the adults around you who are older than you, they know that you're a baby adult. And they just expect you, you know, as long as you like 
show up to your job on time and ask questions about things that you don't know how to do, you're going to be okay. <laughs> like, don't try to fake the life experience that you don't have. And and that's actually really reassuring for them to hear because the culture right now encourages so much navel gazing. And it's like this false psychological fluency that's actually not based in psychological wisdom, if that makes sense. Totally accurate. Let me ask you too, Stephanie, I've heard a lot of this sort of like reversal uh, in that, you know, children are supposed to be giving us, you know, the wisdom that we should let the children lead. And it, to me, it just seems so, you know, backwards when, you know, the adults in the room are supposed to be the ones who are guiding the children into how to have a successful and healthy life experience. Have you, have you seen the Chrome across this a lot? Like, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, I mean, so I talked with Matt Osborne. Uh, I can't remember the name of or the, which number of my podcast that was, but it's the myth of the magical child. And, and we sort of talk about this, right? This, what happens when adults lose sight of common sense about how to be the adults and you sort of idealize the idea of a child, put them on the pedestal. And, you know, it's sort of like, I think part of it is that we're so secular, you know, we've, we don't have much spirituality in our culture. And so that that's like a void. And so things can rush in to fill that void. And I think this sort of like magical child, you know, what, what, what people aren't saying, because I don't think they consciously believe this because they don't, you know, a lot of people who have these beliefs, they don't believe in a God of any kind, but the unconscious belief is that children are like closer to God, right? That's where this comes from yes. is that that they they come from the source and they they come with this transcendent knowledge and and there's this purity to it right so it's this like quasi-religious belief that people aren't fully aware that that's the psychological foundation of how they're thinking but they're just sort of acting on that projection or that assumption and it's almost like a misplaced um impulse to understand the nature of good and evil because again i think that's like a fundamental part of being human is having a sense of spirituality and, and grappling with the nature of good and evil and when you don't have that then you sort of you know the child becomes your representative of all things good or heavenly or godly and then you can project you know not only innocence which arguably children do represent innocence but also this like profound wisdom onto them and you can kind of view yourself as more morally corrupt because you've been conditioned by this world and you know there is a little bit of truth in that we have all been conditioned by this world and by our traumas and by the culture and there is a longing for innocence and for the guidance that comes from that place of innocence maybe too it has to do with our disconnection from nature but you know if we were more connected with nature we would actually be a little closer to understanding the nature of of good and evil and innocence and maliciousness perhaps um so I, I think that there's like a longing for this kind of divine innocence and this this transcendent wisdom and, and guidance that comes from that. And then in that, there's, there's like a refusal to see and hear um, what our own senses are telling us about how the nature of good and evil actually works, which is that if, if you do entertain the notion that there is such a thing as evil or that, that there is a devil or a maleficent force on the planet, then then if you think about it, one thing you have to concede is that evil doesn't care about your morals and evil will happily exploit your morals and will happily exploit everything that you think you believe in to get what it wants. So, you know, if you imagine sort of like the classical archetype of the deal with the devil, the devil sort of like, hey, don't you want this thing over here? All it costs you is your soul. <laughs> Got bargain, right? So if you imagine that that's sort of the nature of temptation, well, 
you know, why would evil have any qualms with going, hey, don't you want to be a good person? <laughs> don't you want to be one of the special ones who understands and protects trans children? Right? All it costs you is your critical thinking and <laughs> blood on your hands for the rest, you know, like, so I, I think this is all a misdirected spiritual instinct. Yeah. And it's definitely connected to the trans phenomenon for sure. Like, you know, Brent brings up, oh, you know, the, we just got to let the children lead the way and all this stuff. That's that, that is what they're doing. They're saying, oh, well, they know, they know that if they say they're the other sex, then they must be, you know, so we should just listen to them and affirm them. And it's like, no, we're the adults in the room. We're supposed to like get rid of some of that uh, woo woo magical thinking that isn't based in reality, you know? Also, it was episode 39. That you Thank you. With Matt Osborne. I looked it up. I'll check this It's a great name, too, by the way. The myth of the magical child. I yeah. love it. Yeah, well, Matt has that. an interesting story because yeah. when he was a when he was a teenager, he was told that he was an indigo child. Yeah, I was oh, reading, I remember that. I was reading the description, and I heard about indigo children and all of that. I used to read about that. <laughs> now stuff I'm really curious. I'm going to have to go back yeah. and listen to that episode. Yeah, it sounds like he had like some new age type parents who that that sort of thing i'm curious so i'm gonna have to go back yeah but can i can i comment from a different angle about this topic that you've brought up right because i went kind of the spiritual direction but i think the other component too is it makes me wonder how much people who hold these beliefs you know the belief that you should just like follow the child's lead how much they have reflected on their own development Mm -hmm. and their own parenting obviously you know people who hold that belief have a wide range of backgrounds as far as how they were parented but you know, you wonder, like, did some of them not have enough boundaries and they never really grew up? And so they're they're parenting as if they are teenagers that believe that, like, the youthful perspective is always the righteous one. Is that part of what's happening? You know, that they weren't given enough boundaries? Or, you know, paradoxically, on the other side, another thing that's equally possible for people who but hold that belief is that that they... Well, or, or that they were actually raised pretty well and they take it for granted because I think that we probably have a lot. I mean, that's what I see in Portland. Like Portland is a, was a beautiful, amazing city. And there's, there was really a lot to cherish about this city. And I think we took that for granted and it's, you know, it's taking for granted what you have and not recognizing the hard work that went into creating those structures that support yes. the things you love that make it really easy to sort of think that you can just tear down those structures and not realize what you're losing in the process. So I wonder if people, you know, hold these beliefs who actually like did receive pretty good parenting and then they just haven't connected the dots about how if you undermine some of the foundations of the ways that they were parented that allowed them to turn out okay, then like you, you actually have very little guarantee that the next generation will be okay. It's a really interesting hypothesis. Yeah. It's also scary. It's like, oh damn, like parents that, you know, did a good job, raised, you know, good kids. It's like, they, they don't necessarily acquire the same ability that their parents had in order to raise in the next generation that is, you know, good kids and well off and able to create another generation. It's uh it's a scary hypothesis too, because uh, it could explain a lot of what we're seeing. As you know, we've had a few decades now of relative prosperity, and the children seem to be having more and more difficulties over time. Whether it's uh, you know with this new social contagion and the gender bending, or uh, just anxiety, mental health, and self harm in general, which have all been you know really spiking in the last yeah. you know really since covid but also the numbers were going up there you know there's a factor we have not talked about yet though that i'm going to introduce into this into this discussion 
Oh, it's a social media. Yes. Right. The handheld pocket computer that you take everywhere you go at all times. You know, when Brett and I were growing up, computers were just being introduced. You're a little older than I am. I think I got was yeah. I was 16 or 17 or when I got my first cell phone. Yeah. And so I was like 19. There was, was no I social was media. Older. So when I wanted to go on the computer or go on the internet, I had to go home, <laughs> sit down in front of the at computer, a computer at a computer right. to do that. It wasn't something that I had access to at every moment of the day, all day long, and that that has changed society in almost every way I can think of. And I think it, it has a huge, huge, huge impact. And on speaking of stuff. taking things for granted, you know, the fact that we carry around these, these pocket computers and have access to social media, it, it's, it's roughly an, you know, an, an invention, like along the lines of the automobile, the Gutenberg or, press, you know, the, the printing press, you know, these, these things that really fundamentally change how we, you know, interact and organize in society. Birth control is another big one. Yeah. Um, but the, the, the appreciation for that, it's just not there. We just sort of taken for granted. Yeah. And, you know, these kids, I see kids as young as 10, 11, 12 with smartphones. And I'm just like, why? Yeah. Why? Well, and, and you know who's affected the worst? It's the adolescent girls, right? And and Jonathan Haidt, I've seen some some great clips from him, of you know excerpts from longer conversations where he really kind of hones in on how when the smartphone was introduced as a you know something that fifty percent of all teenagers started have around 2011, 2012, that's when adolescent girl mental health problems really started to skyrocket. For boys, it was more stable. Um, and for adolescent girls, it was it was more stable prior to that time. I mean, adolescent girls have always had more, you know, higher rates of depression and anxiety than boys. But yeah, it's gotten exponentially worse since then. And and there's a whole conversation to be had there. Absolutely. Yeah. And it correlates with the the gender craze. You know, a lot of these kids who are lost or have traumas or are looking, you know, for somewhere to fit in, they turn to this thing and they find some community on here or something that oh, maybe I'm that, you know, that makes sense. And then they just dive right into it. And so many of the people we've spoken to, that that's how this happened to them. You know, they ended up on TikTok or Tumblr and they kind of just fell into that community and they found a place where they felt like they fit and they didn't question it, you know, and people around them didn't question them. They were affirmed them. And the next thing you know, you know, they're making these irreversible decisions. It's like we have we have to definitely talk about this factor because it's a, it's a huge one. How can you not talk about yeah. social media and the internet and the fact you have access to it all the time at all times? Like maybe and that's then, not a good thing, you know? I'm proud of how our film highlighted that. There was sort of the section in the middle that was put together by Laura Becker, um, where you know, with her music and her art, just showing like thousands of rapid fire clips of what these kids are being exposed to on all these platforms. I also just watched Simon Esler's film that just came out, um, Cut, Daughters of the West. I'm going to be interviewing him next week, and that'll come out, I don't know, um, in April or May. Um, but that one takes a different angle where it starts with looking at the plastic surgery industry and where that started and where it ended up. So where it started was basically war repairing injuries from war um and then after world war ii there were all these surgeons with nothing to do and that's when they started marketing cosmetic surgeries to women and that's when the first um 
uh, sex change operations were attempted. And, um, and did you know that there is now, there has been for the last decade or so, a trend of adolescent girls under the age of 18 getting not only breast implants, as you would tragically already expect, but also labiaplasty, having, having their genitals altered to look more like the labia of the women in the porn that they're watching. Jeez Louise. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, this is like yeah. why I was thinking, you know, it, it's just the, the medical industry, and it was a point that you made earlier, Stephanie, you said, you know, medical professionals have a duty to do no harm. And that's often referred to as the first rule of medicine. It's, and the idea there is that we aren't going to make the situation worse. You know, we are going to, only do things which are proven effective um, and have a minimal risk of having a, a negative outcome or side effect. And I feel like when it comes to cosmetic surgery, that sort of crosses the line for me anyway. You know, I, I see cosmetic surgery as a medically unnecessary surgery. Now, there are some cases, you know, where the rare exceptions, you know, like, as you said, originally it was for people who are grossly disfigured in war or, you know, an accident. And I can understand, you know, the need for that um but it, it's that line of being blurred between you know medical necessity and then just what the people want or what they're willing to pay for and as soon as people are willing to pay for it you'll find some doctor with questionable ethics who's willing to you know do the work so to speak and and get paid and it's it seems to be a big problem and i, I really wish that there was more ethics in medical ethics it just it just blows my mind that we've gotten to the point now where these routine cosmetic surgeries, um, are, well, cosmetic surgery itself is just routine and, and socially accepted and taken for granted. And then on top of that, now we're talking about cosmetic surgery for minors. And then on top of that, we're talking about cosmetic surgery for minors that is sexual in nature and permanently alters their, their sexual and genital uh, configurations. It just blows my mind. Like, where are the professional boards? You know, I, this is what you know. Professional bodies are supposed to guard against. You're supposed to have these these medical boards to to ensure that this kind of stuff doesn't happen. And yet, here we are, where it's just happening across the board. It's fully experimental, and the FDA hasn't stepped in or anything. And everybody's making money, but these poor people. Well, and and get this, Brentley. So it was it was shocking to me watching uh, Simon Esler's film cut daughters of the west again um because i i just you know i haven't really been following this information about um labiaplasty as a trend in in young women and i had no idea and i didn't one. i didn't know that what's been happening there actually is very similar to what's been happening with so-called gender affirming care where these surgeons are actually touting the supposed mental health benefits so they're recommending um, you know, they're recommending labiaplasty because it supposedly makes these girls feel better about their appearance and is therefore better for their mental health. That's, oh. that's how it's being touted. Yeah. yeah. We're, we're not even just Rage! addressing the mental health issue and trying to figure out what is going on there. It's like, yeah, you could just physically alter yourself because you're, you're not fine the way you look. It's like that to me feels like it would exacerbate the mental health issues. It's like, oh yeah, your it's vagina like, looks like it, it, yeah, we could definitely, you know, trim that up, yeah. make it look a little bit nicer for you, yeah. this seventeen-year-old, eighteen-year-old girl who's naturally insecure about her appearance anyway. Yeah. It's like, what happened to <sighs> just like go to therapy? <laughs> you know, just go to therapy. 
it's like no no we're gonna we're gonna cut into you we're and gonna change cut. you and that's gonna help your mental health issues it's crazy it i'll is crazy. put a link uh to put a link to that yeah I, lo I looked it up cut daughters of the west i definitely want to check that one out that's insane though i didn't even know that was happening it looks like it's on vimeo right or no it's not out yet so this actually this does relate to another comes out april 15th subject that i guess we can get into a bit here and we did talk a bit about this with buck angel but we didn't necessarily talk about it from this angle but porn you know in the porn industry and how much of this stuff is um young people with porn addictions of some sort trying to emulate what they see in that you know and and there there's definitely an element to it there like for example like laura becker wanted to be a gay man <laughs> this is you know that's a that's a fetishized view of something like she was attracted to men who weren't attracted to her so part of what she wanted to do was to change herself into a man to try to get those types of men to be attracted to her and there's something else going on there and it definitely i think relates to porn and the type of porn that that young people are being exposed to and watching yeah and it's my understanding that um so many kids are being exposed to this porn that is really violent and degrading to women and that part of the appeal for girls of being a so-called gay boy is that um, their exposure to gay relationships is more like the anime or manga, um, you know, sweet, romantic, much more girl-friendly. It's about the relationship, it's about the storyline and the witty conversation and the genuine affection that builds for each other over time. And if, if those are the models that you're presented where you know, to be female means you have to look a certain way and be objectified and degraded and abused. Or, um, you know, you can opt out of that and be a gay boy and have a sweet love story. I mean, I, I think the obvious, you know, it's it's clear what most girls <laughs> would choose if yeah. those are the options that are presented. And it's also a fantasy because if you actually look in deep into the gay dating world and all that stuff, that is not what it is like um maybe a portion of it is like that i'm not saying gay men can't have sweet romantic relationships but man if you delve into the, the deep into that scene it's like no a lot of it really is it's very sexual very promiscuous you know you will get used in the same way that you know girls probably feel like they're gonna get used by just staying a girl you well, know? and that's the thing right is that the 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 porn that's affecting these girls sense of what it is to be female is very much based on male sexuality at its most deviant expressions and the the anime and manga is is much more female friendly right it claims to represent gay relationships but it's but it's actually it's very feminine yeah it's a caricature yeah. it's, like it's, a, it's a cartoon caricature of a gay relationship it's, it's how women imagine as as conceived by girls yeah <sighs> what are we gonna do? Um, let me see. We're we're coming in at an hour twenty. For the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, Stephanie, um, is this this phenomenon of drag queen story hour and this idea of bringing drag to younger and younger audiences. Yesterday, Daniel and myself went down to uh, the LGBTQ center here in Manhattan. It used to be called the Gay Center, but now it's the Alphabet Center. Um, and they were hosting a uh, very controversial drag queen story hour. 
uh, hosted by uh, our Attorney General Letitia James. In attendance were uh, State Senator Brad Hoyleman, who happens to represent my district, and um, a, a palette of the New York City councilors, including Eric Botcher, who I used to be friends with, not so much anymore. Um, so what do you think about this drag queen story? Do you think that there is there value here? Like, just, you know, let me, give me your professional opinion as somebody, you know, who comments on these issues. It's like, I don't know how we got here. I, I don't know why we're still, right? Like, it's just so Hunger Games. Like, there's so much <laughs> Hunger Games pomp and circumstance and, and dramatic flair and closed ears going on. And it, it's like, personally, just speaking for myself, not speaking on behalf of my profession or my film or anything like that, I find drag distasteful. I have never felt drawn to it. I've always thought it was kind of creepy. That is that is my personal aesthetic preference. It's my choice is that it's it does not suit my sense of what's beautiful or attractive or meaningful or interesting, you know? Um, but I, I never had a problem with anyone doing it until it became this politicized issue where like they're conflating men's grotesque and sexualized characters of women with um, the gay community as like as if that's like the best representation of the gay community and then making this a gay rights issue when I mean like you have to question the character of anyone who's drawn to dramatic attention seeking and risque behavior like that's you know and again like this is why i called my episode with andrew hart's counseling in a cluster b culture because what are you supposed to do when you're trying to represent mental health and, and you know you guys know josh slocum so you know how much he talks about cluster b like what are you supposed to do when your job is to promote mental health but the whole culture is promoting these deeply personality disordered ways of being i mean we're looking at narcissistic and histrionic behavior we're looking at people who want to be the center of attention with a dramatic flair in overly sexualized, overly intimate ways. And um, and again, like done behind closed doors, I don't personally care. It's just not something I would want to partake in. I just don't understand why or how this this group of all people became, you know, the elected representatives of the gay community. And this became something to involve children in. It just feels like it feels like a flex. It feels like a power move yep. on behalf of whoever's pulling the strings. And I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, so I'm not going to speculate as to who that is. But it feels like if there is some malicious force here, that it's like a taunting. It's like, see how far we can go? Oh, we can like do a strip tease in front of your children and you're not going to say anything to us. Yeah, we like, can like, you know, like like you said, caricatured versions of women, absurd, ridiculous, and just sit there and read books to them and pretend that there's nothing unusual about that at all. You know, Brad and I, like he said, we went to a protest yesterday and I confronted one of the protesters who came up to our side and was trying to argue with us, you know, and he wouldn't give me a straight answer, but I would just ask him like, like what is the educational value of having a drag queen read to kids? Why, what? He's like, just to read them a story. I'm like, why? You know, you know, because they're just reading stories. Why? Why not have a, a regular person do that? And then he got offended. What do you mean a regular person? I was like, not someone who's up there dressed 
crazy like a like like a woman and then he was oh i'm not talking to you and totally dismissed it they but can't answer the question what is the educational value of it what does it teach kids they claim it teaches kids about acceptance of different people and all that stuff there are plenty of ways you can do that without bringing something that is traditionally a provocative lewd underground adult form of entertainment in front of children and it's just like the other aspect of it that's the elephant in the room that they don't want to talk about is like i think they are trying to introduce the gender ideology through it like to get kids to realize like well you can be anything you want and if you don't feel like you're a girl you don't feel like a, you're a boy look these adults they they can do this you can do this too and modeling the behavior modeling the behavior and introducing that confusion into them and i just i think it's wrong you know and brett and i are gay and we think it's wrong we've been to drag shows we enjoyed them i've been to drag shows that i thought were hilarious and funny um i understand not everyone is into that i'm not totally into it either but i've been to ones that i thought were fun and i get it raunchy lewd over the top these are not the types of people culturally that should be around kids just period and i question the motivation of anyone who participates in that culture and then wants to get up and read in front of kids in that manner dressed and children have instincts like i don't know if you've ever noticed how um have you noticed there are certain, and this is this is going to sound really not PC, but you know we're way past that point. Have you ever noticed that women with really soft features and wide eyes and round faces, babies love them, mm. right? Okay, like there are there are physical features that signal safety to a baby, yeah. right? And kids have instincts that are there to protect them, where they kind of read these basic physiological cues. And now think about um, how many of us were afraid of clowns when we were little. I was creeped out by clowns. I remember my grandma had this weird like clown clock with like this clown with all this face paint on and it was just so creepy to me. Drag queens look like clowns. They're covered in so much makeup and it's so grotesque and disfiguring and not natural. Children are hardwired to look for people with really safe faces, safe, caring, natural, trustworthy faces. And by exposing children to drag, you're overriding that base instinct of like, what kind of face is safe to be around i've seen children in these videos have really bad reactions like they're pulling away like they don't want to look at that there's something that some doesn't them, some of them resonate like, for their senses some of them look like demons i'm telling you they look like freaking demons to me like go some look up the pictures like of the event yesterday and look at what some of those drag queens look like maybe brent can pull some of them up now to me they just look like straight up demons and i think your point is correct like it teaches kids to not have that ability anymore to to look for a face that is safe they'll just disregard that completely and if anything that's going to make them open and more vulnerable to actually ending up in in you know the snare of a, of a predator like because they're not going to be able to read the cues they're going to be like oh well this person yeah they look creepy or whatever but there's nothing wrong with that but, you know and and this is coming for many kids when like if you think about what what are the ages of the children in these drag shows? Let's say they're four or five. As low as three from what I've read. Okay. So think about these are kids that were born during the pandemic. Yep. So they spent the first two to three years not seeing hardly any faces, uh, right? Yep. 
So already the part of their brain that's developing from reading people's faces is behind during a really critical window. And then add into that, you know, state of delay and deficit, you add in this really confusing signal that now you're being taught that what's supposed to be good and light and innocent and fun and positive and safe is this face with all this crazy makeup on it that disrupts your basic ability to read sex and safety cues in, in the adults around you. Yeah, I think that's actually a really good point. I didn't even think about that that other factor there, the fact that some of these kids really are that young. Like I said, as, as young as three. And that would mean that they were technically born when the lockdowns happened. And the, their entire early developmental stages, yeah, they've been, you know, not being exposed to normal looking faces. And now we're exposing them to these really weird and abnormal looking faces. Oh God. Telling so them this that is that's one okay. of the drag... I don't even know if I could call this a drag queen because yeah. it doesn't look like a drag queen. This is a Monster. man in a makeup for people yeah. that are just listening. Um, he's got his whole face is painted green, yellows, oranges. It looks like it's supposed to be a sky. He's got a shirt on that says, I don't need or want to be cis. Yes. Um, so you know, I think I, it says, actually, I think I saw this picture earlier and it says, I don't want to look or be cis. Isn't that you. interesting? Yeah, yeah. Yes. So, yeah. So what are we teaching them with that too? You know? oh, is this look the, up the other one though. The, the, the one that Andy No um, corrected that journalist about, cause that one looks like a straight up demon. And that dude was at the, <laughs> so Andy No had it. They probably invited that person out of spite too. Oh, you're not going to find it on his page. Actually, you can go and look up the New York Post article. There's a picture of them there. Okay. Um, so just go to... I'll find it. It should come right up. They put this story out yesterday. Uh, here we are. Yeah, so scroll down on that, and I believe they had a few pictures of some of the drag queens. And like there, you know, there's what was happening outside. There's Letitia James, our wonderful attorney general. Yeah, so there's the one we just saw with the shirt. And then, yeah, this one's sitting on the ground. Like, look, like that is not someone that I want to be around kids. Stay in your underground nightclub, hang out with the with the other, you know, LGBTQs and all that stuff, and do your thing there. Also, this person is like into like weird sexual bondage and all that stuff. Yeah. And you know, exposed that stuff as well. If you go onto their personal social media, like. This is, we don't want these people around kids. This is not a homophobic thing. I'm telling you, because I'm gay, it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> this is just a natural instinct thing. I think whether you're religious or not religious or gay or straight, you should look at this and be like, this is freaking weird. Why do these people even want to be around kids looking like that, reading to them? What are they teaching? What are they, what is the, again, what is the educational value of it? Anyone watching this? answer that question for me in the comments if you disagree with me i want a legitimate answer what is the educational value of exposing people like that to children in an innocuous way just reading books like what does it teach and them? like literally anybody could be reading books we could have like grandma story hour yeah. we could have like you know well the city funded with taxpayer money, librarian but... story hour like Since... the, it'd be nice to have just you know normal like you know safe individuals yeah. reading children's and, and the tragic thing is that like we've all been so isolated that it would be really healing for the old folks and you know people in wheelchairs and army veterans and retired teachers i mean there's so many people who would 
benefit, you know, I think they're, they're somewhere in Europe there. Do you guys know the story of like the place that opened a preschool in an old folks home in one? No, I didn't know they did that in Europe. I hmm. heard something similar, I think in Japan. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's probably a few places in, in the world where people yeah. are opening businesses like this, where it's like such a win-win for everyone, because, you know, for, if you are sort of a lonely old person who doesn't get out or around much, like being surrounded with smiling little children and reading them stories, like how sweet is that? Right. And old people, and children and old people go together so beautifully like little kids need grandparents to tell them stories and give them affection and like it's like we could have like this we missed the mark this is so far off the mark and and there's like an element of truth in it which is that reading stories to children is a good thing right but like again we're prior it's like a, t a massive scale darvo deny attack reverse victim and offenders narcissistic emotional abuse that like you you switch who's the victim and who's who's the offender here and paint these as the good guys when really like there's so many other people um who would be safer and and better suited for this role yeah and i'll reiterate again our taxpayer money is paying for this over two hundred thousand dollars since 2018 in new york city was allocated toward holding events that's like so this upsetting in schools and in libraries throughout new york city I know, and and my taxpayer dollars is you know paying for people's sex change operations. <laughs> like, yep. not that you can change sex, but but I think that's probably all the time we have for today. Yes, thank you so much, Stephanie, for yeah, joining we appreciate us. It. I really appreciated the conversation. I think we did a, a nice whirlwind around the the different subjects here. Uh, let people know where they can find you on on Twitter, and then I think I have your website pulled up too. Sure, I'll just go through everything. So you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram at some therapist. My website is sometherapist.com. The name of my podcast is You Must Be Some Kind of Therapist. That's available on YouTube. I love it. Um, my handle on YouTube is some therapist. Um, and it's available on all audio platforms. Um, I have a community on locals at somekindoftherapist.locals.com. I'm just starting to spread the word. And then uh, Affirmation Generation. So our website is affirmationgenerationmovie.com. And you can follow us on YouTube at Affirmation Generation. So from AffirmationGenerationMovie.com, you can click on that link that'll take you straight to the Vimeo. You can also watch the trailer. Um, we have some research there. You can make a donation and find all of our socials. Actually, I need to make sure our social links are working. They were down for a moment. Um, so as far as Affirmation Generation on social media, you can follow us on Twitter at 2022, that's 2022, Affirmation. Um, and on Instagram, you can follow us at Affirmation Generation. Yeah, everyone, please go watch that film. I'll put all those very, links very in the important. description for folks. If they, uh, if they want it handy dandy, I'll put it down there for y'all. Yeah. Um, and right. I see you're not following Julia Mason. You should. She's in our film and she uh, she's testifying today against HB 2002. Nice. And uh, and she did our D-Trans Awareness Day panel here in Portland. Yeah, I got me. her. Sweet. I'm always looking for, you know, more people that are speaking out. It's very important and to, that we all sort of find each other and connect. Yeah, um, it's so great to finally talk to you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we appreciate it a lot. Stephanie, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. Everyone, please remember, like, comment, subscribe, share, subscribe, comment. share this, please, and go watch Affirmation Generation. Incredibly important. Stay safe. Stay sane. We'll be back again soon. Love you. Bye-bye.